Fiction Machine is a website written by me, Grant Watson. It's basically a set of essays exploring the making of interesting films and having a look at how good movies are built by the talented artists who make them. So you can find the essays themselves at www.fictionmachine.com and a new essay is uploaded at least once a month. This is the podcast version of the same site. It provides the same information, just in an audio format, so that you can listen to it without having to waste your valuable time or strain your eyes reading you know, several thousand words off a computer screen, mobile phone, what have you. Fiction Machine is funded by generous donations via Patreon, so more information on how you can help fund the writing and presentation of these essays for as little as $1 a month. Just follow the link at the top of the Fiction Machine website. Today we're talking This Is True Love. The Princess Bride, made in 1987. As a writer, said William Goldman, the only book I really like is The Princess Bride. Goldman's original take on the classic fairy tale was first published in 1973. It was his eighth novel, although despite beginning his career as an author, he had already made significant headroads into writing for American cinema. Goldman's first produced screenplay, Masquerade, was released in 1965. His third, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, made in 1969, won in the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. The Princess Bride tells the story of Princess Buttercup, her one true love, Wesley the farm boy, and the evil Prince Humperdinck who comes between them. The book features pirates, monsters, swordsmen, death, resurrection, and true love overcoming all obstacles in the hunt for a happy ending. Its origins lay, as I suspect many children's stories do, in stories Goldman told his own children. I had two little daughters, he said. I think they were seven and four at the time, and I said, I'll write you a story. What do you want it to be about? One of them said, a princess, and the other one said, a bride, and I said, that'll be the title. What makes Goldman's novel so interesting is how it's structured. The Princess Bride is presented to the reader as an old classic novel written by the pseudonymous S. Morgenstern, and Goldman's presentation is as an abridgment of that original work. It cuts out the parts that Goldman considers boring or unnecessary, and features a running commentary on what has been cut, kept, or shortened from Morgenstern's original. The book itself is a literary classic, to my mind, and it's wonderful to read. It's eclipsed these days, however, by its motion picture adaptation. Despite all of the strengths of the original novel, in 1987, director Rob Reiner took The Princess Bride and somehow adapted a fantastic book into an even better film. Its fans have included both United States President Bill Clinton and Pope John Paul II. It really is one of the most broadly enjoyable movies ever produced. Well, there had been interest in adapting Goldman's novel pretty much immediately after it was published. Norman Jewison, Robert Redford, and even French auteur Francois Truffaut attempted to direct The Princess Bride, yet they all failed to secure sufficient interest from studios or independent financiers. This is the kind of thing that would happen, explained Goldman. The head of 20th Century Fox at the time liked it, but didn't know if it was a movie. We made an arrangement whereby I owned the screenplay and he owned the book, or something like that. If he liked the screenplay, he would buy it and make the movie. He read it and loved the screenplay. He sent me off to England to work with Richard Lester, who had just directed The Three Musketeers. I worked with him for two weeks, rewrote it, sent it back to the studio head, who loved it, and was fired. Then I bought it back myself. At one point, the Moscow Film Bureau had somehow gained a copy of Goldman's screenplay and offered to produce the film in Russia. While Goldman did not turn down the offer out of hand, in the end he and the Russian producers couldn't agree on a director. Goldman said, The directors who I wanted wouldn't go to Moscow for a year and a half, and the directors who would go to Moscow for a year and a half, I didn't want. In 1982, Goldman was approached by the director John Badham about developing a Princess Bride movie. The writer and director met, they agreed to work together, and then Badham was hired overnight to replace Martin Brest as the director on MGM's Thriller War Games. Princess Bride was back to square one. So while Rob Reiner was not the first director to be attracted to The Princess Bride, he was the only one able to pull together the financial support to get the film produced. 
He said, I loved this book when I read it. I read it when I was a young guy, and again, I'd read every one of his books. This was the one that went, wow! This is a book that if I had the ability to write, and I could write something, I would write this book, because it was so connected to my sensibility in my head. The romance of it, the satire, all of those things mixed together, and I thought, you know, what I love about this is what I want to make a film about. Reiner travelled to New York with his partner, Andy Scheinman, to personally pitch his take on the novel to William Goldman. He emphasised how important it would be to translate the novel as accurately as possible. According to Reiner, We sat down, and basically what I said to him was, I said, Bill, I've read these... I didn't call him Bill. I said, Mr. Goldman, I've read these other drafts, and what I want to do is go right back to what you have in your book, I said. The only thing that I would say is that the zoo of death takes so long to go through the different levels. Let's make it happen. Let's call it a pit of despair or something, and make the one torture element happen there, you know? And that was the only thing we did. And then the prologue about how to find the book, I said, we can't do that, but let's have it telling a grandson or a father telling a son. Let's interrupt the story, just the way the book does. Let's protect what we love about this book. One other person Reiner needed to convince was his regular producer, Norman Lear. Near and Reiner's careers first intertwined when the former cast the latter in the hugely successful sitcom All in the Family. Their professional relationship continued after Reiner shifted from acting into directing. Lear had financed Reiner's debut feature, This is Spinal Tap, and produced his later films, The Sure Thing and Stand By Me. Lear said, We had a conversation about the project, and I said... Tell me, what is the lifeline of this picture? And he said, the love story. And I said, how can you sustain the love story with all that tomfoolery? And he said, difficult. And I said, how can you sustain the love story with the lead kidding it all the time? And he said, yeah. And I said, it isn't even happening. It's a grandfather reading it to a kid. Rob, that's impossible. And he said, yep. And that's when I knew I wanted to do it with him. He wasn't kidding himself. He knew it was a real reach. But that's what this business is all about. You've got to keep reaching. Securing a production budget was a near insurmountable task. Hollywood's major studios all rejected the project. Fantasy films had seen a brief resurgence of popularity at the beginning of the decade, but had seemingly fallen out of favour with audiences. Independent production companies lacked the capital to back such an ambitious project, which featured in a European location shoot and a reasonably large cast of characters. In order to raise sufficient funding, Reiner was forced to cut his own salary and then negotiate lower salaries with his cast. Foreign and home video rights were independently sold, market by market, to get as much funding up front as possible. The laborious project process ultimately secured Rainer a budget of roughly $16 million. So The Princess Bride begins in two ways. The fantasy adventure of the novel is framed by grandfather, Peter Falk, visiting a sick grandson, Fred Savage, and offering to read him his favourite book. The grandson rolls his eyes, but the grandfather insists. They act like a Greek chorus for the remainder of the film, the grandson objecting to unwanted plot twists or finding the, quote, kissing parts boring, and the grandfather patiently working through the constant interruptions. Reiner recalled, Originally, Peter Falk said, I don't know if I'm old enough to be the grandfather. He said, maybe we should put prosthetics on me to make me look older. So we did. We did a test on it. He looked at it and said, Rob, I look like a burn victim. I said, Peter, maybe we'll do it without the prosthetics. He said, I think you're onto something. It's a very bold creative choice, the grandfather-grandson element of the film. It's one that retains the sense of commentary from the original novel, but it does it in a distinctly cinematic fashion. It also cleverly navigates its way around any problems with immersion. It could be potentially catastrophic for a film to tell a story, while simultaneously telling the audience that the story is not real. But The Princess Bride deftly manages to pull it off. Well, the story proper begins in the medieval land of Florin. Buttercup, not yet a princess, orders around a simple farm boy named Wesley. He loves her unconditionally, but by the time she realises the same, he has seemingly died at sea. 
Five years later, a bereft buttercup agrees to marry a local prince, Humperdinck. But on the eve of their wedding, she's kidnapped by the criminal Vecini and his two accomplices, the giant Fezzik and the Spanish swordman Inigo Montoya. Vecini and his henchmen escort Buttercup to boat by the, to the rival nation of Gilda. En route, they realise they're being followed by an anonymous masked man in a boat of his own. We beefed up the love story, said Reiner. The book starts with Buttercup and Wesley falling in love, being torn apart. He's been so-called killed on the high sea by pirates. Then they reunite and fight and overcome the evil prince. In the screenplay that I read, you didn't know about Wesley and Buttercup until about 50 pages in. It opened with Buttercup being introduced to the crowd and you didn't know what that backstory was. I felt that the audience would be more involved and have more of a rooting interest in Wesley and Buttercup if they knew the guy in black is Wesley. Finding the perfect Princess Buttercup was the first and most difficult casting challenge. Rob Reiner claimed to have assessed several hundred young actresses for the role before discovering Robin Wright, who at that point had been performing in the television soap opera Santa Barbara. Despite hailing from Texas, Wright had no difficulty performing with an English accent. Wright said, It was my first film experience, and so you might say that I fully immersed myself in the role. I did not act. I was mostly telling myself, don't be an idiot in front of Mandy Patinkin and Christopher Guest. Wesley was played by the English actor Carrie Elwes. Elwes met Reiner in a Berlin hotel while Elwes was in the city shooting John Goldsmith's Mashenka. Now, I knew the book, said Elwes. I read the book when I was 13, and I knew who Rob Reiner was. I'd seen All in the Family as a kid, and I'd seen a pretty cool movie he made called Spinal Tap. I didn't know what I was more excited about, the idea of Marty DeBergi being in my hotel room or Meathead. Vecini, the Sicilian mastermind who kidnaps Buttercup before her wedding to Humperdinck, was played by the noted theatre actor Wallace Shawn. I was not the first actor they wanted, said Shawn. Unfortunately, my agent at that time believed it would be helpful for me to know who they actually wanted, so he told me it was Danny DeVito. Looking back on it, it didn't help. Danny is inimitable. Each scene we did, I pictured how he would have done it, and I knew I could never possibly have done it the way he would have done it. It made it challenging. The Spanish swordsman Inigo Montoya, who was driven throughout the film to track down and slay a six-fingered man for murdering his father, was played by Mandy Patinkin. Patinkin was considered for several roles in the film, but after reading the screenplay, he telephoned Reiner directly and begged to be cast as Inigo. The moment I read the script, said Patinkin, I loved the part of Inigo Montoya. That character just spoke to me profoundly. I had lost my own father. He died at 53 years old from pancreatic cancer in 1972. I didn't think about it consciously, but I think there was a part of me that thought, if I get that man in black, my father will come back. I talked to my dad all the time during filming, and it was very healing for me. Andre the Giant, born Andre Rusimov, was Rob Reiner's first and only choice for the role of Fezzik. Reiner said, The casting of Andre the Giant is not like you throw a stick out and you hit 50 giants. I mean, there's not that many giants in the world. So basically when we started this, Bill Goldman said that Andre was the only one who can play this part. He said, you've got to get Andre the Giant. Everyone in the production agreed that Andre was the only choice to play Fezzik. The problem was, no one knew where he was. Not even my agent knew, said Andre. I told him I was taking three months off, but I just went to Europe and wrestled down there. He tried to call my home in North Carolina, and even the people that lived in my house didn't know where I was. Finally, they found me in Austria. I said yes the next day. Reiner met with Andre in a bar in Paris. During the subsequent audition, Reiner found his accent was so strong as to make him unintelligible. The director ultimately recorded all of Fezzik's lines onto tape for Andre to listen to and learn phonetically. Andre made an immediate impression on his co-stars. It was like Bill Goldman said, recalled Carrie Elwes. It's like the Pentagon. No matter how big people tell you it's going to be, it's always bigger when you're in front of it. He was like the eighth wonder in the world. Prince Humperdinck was played by Chris Sarandon. He said, 
I'd read the book many years before when the film rights were owned by Robert Redford and he was trying to do it, but he could never quite get it together. Ultimately, when I heard it was being done as a film, I thought, oh God, this is fabulous, I love that book, I just want to go in and read for it. I did, I got it, and the experience lived up to every expectation that I had because we were a very collegial group. We had a very good time. All the characters were clearly delineated on the page, said Sarandon. It's not the kind of piece where you have to do lots of sort of soul-searching and research and background work and biographies, that sort of thing, which I've done in a number of roles in the past. Bill Goldman, the screenwriter and writer of the novel, has created a very unique piece. All of the characters are very clearly laid out. When not shooting his scenes, Sarandon spent most of his time on location, riding horses with his co-star Christopher Guest, who played Humperdinck's henchman, Count Rugen. Back to the story. While Vassini and Fezzik move on ahead with their captive, Inigo is left behind to kill the masked man. Actually, the not-dead Wesley, now masquerading as the dead dread pirate Roberts. When Wesley reaches Inigo atop the Cliffs of Insanity, and after some polite conversation, the two engage in a sword duel. Patinkin, who had the benefit of being cast earlier than Elwes, trained for two months with Yale University fencing, fencing coast Henry Haratunian before production began. Elwes was required to catch up on set, recalling that Reiner, quote, assigned to us two of the greatest trainers we could possibly get, and they worked us every single day. We never had a chance to sit down. One of the trainers was legendary sword fight choreographer Bob Anderson, an Olympic fencer who had coached Errol Flynn during Master of the Ballantrae, before applying his talents to such films as Barry Lyndon, Star Wars and Highlander. Elwes again. Bob said to us at the beginning, We've deliberately asked the producers to move the schedule of the sword fight sequence to the end of the movie, because we need every day that we can get with you just to teach you to do the right-handed sword. Forget the left hand, that's going to be a whole other thing. Rob Reiner said, We're very proud of the fact that every frame of swordplay is done by both of them. There are no doubles. We have flips where they flip off a bar or something. That's not swordplay, where we had doubles for those. But even this guy Peter Diamond and this guy named Bob Anderson, who was the Olympic champion, both of them said they'd never in any of the sword fights they ever staged did Errol Flynn do all of it. In the wide shots, they had doubles. So we were very proud of the fact that both Mandy and Kerry did all of the swordplay, left and right-handed. It's one of the finest, funniest, and most engaging sword fights in movie history, and arguably the Princess Bride's second best scene. It's cleverly paced, wonderfully choreographed, and it's backed by a precisely composed musical score. That Patinkin and Elwes performed their own stunts is visibly obvious, and it benefits the film enormously. Wesley emerges from the fight victorious, but knocks an ego unconscious rather than kills him. Seeing Wesley still in pursuit, Fazzini leaves Fezzik behind to ambush Wesley with a rock. Fezzik does not see this as particularly sportsmanlike, and offers to wrestle Wesley instead. Elwes said, Fighting with him was interesting, in that Andre had a bad back. He'd been in the ring fighting something like 200 fights a year. People thought that he was so big that he could jump up and down on his back, or smash a chair on his neck, whatever. They felt they didn't have to hold back when it came to fighting Andre in the ring. So overall, over the years, carrying all the weight that he had and being jumped up and down on, he developed a rather serious back problem, poor guy. Andre self-medicated his back pain on the set with alcohol, drinking a daily mixture of spirits from a pitcher. For his fight with Elwes, a special rig was developed so that from particular angles it would look as if Elwes was grappling around the giant's neck, although at no point was Elwes' full weight placed on Andre's back. Once again, Wesley is victorious and leaves Fezzik unconscious rather than dead. This leaves only Vassini for Wesley to deal with. Vassini is already prepared, threatening to kill Buttercup with a knife unless Wesley backs away. Wesley instead offers a game of intrigue. Two cups, one poisoned, both men drink, and whoever doesn't die gets the princess. Wally Sean, said Reiner, is probably the furthest thing from a Sicilian you could possibly imagine. And he thought we were going to fire him after the first day. 
Because the first thing we did with him was the Battle of Wit scene with the Iocane powder. He was sure we were going to fire him. I can't get the Sicilian accent. I said, Wally, we want the Sicilian to sound just like you. Despite his own doubts, the casting of Wallace Shawn was a masterstroke. It's a deliberate piece of apparent miscasting, since Shawn bears no obvious resemblance to a Sicilian criminal mastermind. He performs the part with such glee, however, creating what seems to be, maybe a Nego aside, the film's best character. Suffice to say, Vecini does not survive Wesley's game. Wesley takes Buttercup, who does not recognise him until, Humperdinck's forces on fast approach, she shoves him down a steep hill to escape. Realising her mistake, she dives down the hill after him. The hill scenes were shot at Higa Tor, close to England's border with Scotland. Gary always had broken his toe trying to ride Andre the Giant's dune buggy and was having difficulty walking. If you watch the scene, you can actually see him very delicately placing his leg in various positions while talking to her. Reunited at last, but now on the run from Humperdinck's men, Wesley and Buttercup escape through the dreaded fire swamp. It's filled with quicksand, unexpected plumes of flame, and the dreaded rodents of unusual size, otherwise known as the R.O.U.S.'s. Elwes said, My first day of shooting was in the fire swamp with Robin. I called Rob the night before because I was nervous. I was 23 and this was my first big movie. So I called him and I asked him what to expect. And he said, Ah, it's an easy day. You're going to rescue Robin from a big burst of flame. Then you're going to jump into quicksand. Then you're going to rustle a couple of guys dressed as rats. No big deal. And I thought, that's no big deal? Robin Wright's first day involved Buttercup's dress getting caught on fire by one of the swamp's trademark plumes. Reiner recalled, The first day we shot with it was this scene where she gets lit up by the fire swamp. Bill Goldman says, I can't believe we're setting our leading lady on fire on the first day. We were all so worried she was going to get burned. She didn't get burned. Shooting Wesley's fight with the ROUS was put in jeopardy when the stunt artist employed to operate the rodent suit was actually arrested for burning down a kennel in a fight with his wife. He'd been forced to spend the night in jail and was bailed out by production staff. Carrie always said, The little fellow who was playing the rodent of unusual size I was put to wrestle with, he didn't show up to work. And Rob decided that the only alternative available to us, because we were going to lose the set that day, was to have me wrestle a rubble rat. And that, I had some, I had some moments where Rob was directing me on how to make the rubber rat seem more realistic. I was definitely going to myself, hmm, I wonder if this is going to sell. Thankfully the missing artist did arrive on the set, albeit late, allowing the scene to be completed as intended. The R.O.U.S.s are easily the least convincing aspect of the Princess Bride, but it's questionable whether a more complex and expensive realisation of the beasts would have significantly improved the film, which already is pretty awesome. Andy Scheinman, the producer, said, I suppose there are more technically advanced, more complicated ways to do the R.O.U.S. We could have spent millions on animatronics. But to me, because the story is told so well, what we have is just fine and very effective. On the other side of the swamp, the lovers are ambushed by Humperdinck's lieutenant, Count Rugen. Buttercup is returned to the castle and her fiancé, while Wesley is secretly taken back to Humperdinck's underground torture chamber. It's worth considering at this point just how out of balance the Princess Bride's narrative structure is. Students in film school are taught all about three-act structures, basically how all films need to have a tightly tightly defined beginning, middle, and climax. The Princess Bride structure is much more difficult to pin down. It functions in more of an episodic fashion, Furthermore, it's one that is interrupted from time to time by the grandfather and grandson reading the story. At this point in the film, the story seems to briefly collapse altogether. Inigo takes to drink. Fezix joins the prince's brute squad militia. Buttercup has agreed to marry Humperdinck so long as Wesley is set free. And Humperdinck has had Wesley killed in a fit of jealous rage. It's a masterpiece of writing, really, because at this point in the film, there is no possible way for the story to continue. And so, William Goldman found an impossible one instead. 
Inigo and Fezzik are reunited, and together they retrieve Wesley's corpse and take it to Miracle Max to be resurrected. It is Max, played in a one-scene cameo by the comedian and actor Billy Crystal, who explains how Wesley is only mostly dead. He can easily be revived by swallowing a chocolate-coated miracle. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, but it's staged and performed so delightfully that as viewers, we simply don't care. Shooting the Miracle Max scene took three days. Mandy Patinkin said, Those were the three greatest days of my life. For three days, I stood off camera while Billy Crystal had cataract contact lenses in so he couldn't see. I was camera left, the camera was between Rob Reiner and myself, and we were facing Billy. My job was to keep feeding Billy his off-camera, my off-camera lines, so he could keep doing it. He improvised 13th century period jokes three days straight, ten hours a day. Never the same thing, never the same line twice. Rob got so hysterical on almost every take that he'd have to leave the room because he couldn't keep quiet from laughing and it would end up on the soundtrack. Yes, well, that's Rob encouraging that, said Crystal. The mutton, lettuce and tomato, that was improvised. A couple of other little things. There was ten tons of stuff that didn't end up in the movie where it got a little dirty, which was really funny. And he said, listen, I've got the scene, go have fun. And how can you not have fun? With Wesley alive, but effectively paralysed for the time being, Inigo and Fezzik storm the castle. While Wesley is left lying on a bed to have a final verbal confrontation with Humperdinck, Inigo finally faces the six-fingered man who murdered his father, Humperdinck's henchman, Count Rugen. Christopher Guest, who plays Rugen, recalled, In that final sword fight, I was so into it, I was making the sound of the sword hitting the other sword. I was doing the ching-ching-ching-ching, because that's what you do when you're a kid. Rob said, Cut! You don't need to do that. We're going to put in the sound of the swords later. I was like, ah... I mentioned earlier that Inigo and Wesley's duel atop the, atop the Cliffs of Insanity was the film's second best scene. It's second because it's beaten by this. Inigo finally coming face to face with Rugen and dueling with him for his father's honour. In a film that spent much of its time indulging in comedy, it's an unexpectedly and forcefully dramatic moment. It begins humorously, then becomes more serious as Inigo finds himself outclassed by Rugen's swordplay and badly injured. It then becomes funny again as a vengeful Inigo simply refuses to die. By the time he's recovered his momentum, disarmed Rugen and stabbed him to death, it's positively heartbreaking. Inigo's response to Rugen's pleas that he will give him anything to have his life spared. He says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Contracts starkly to every other line of dialogue in the film. Everything else has been this whimsical fairy tale. This scene hurts. The Princess Bride is ostensibly a film about overwhelming romantic love between Wesley and Buttercup. It's also a film about the tragic love between a dead father and an orphan child. Wesley's climactic confrontation with Humperdinck bears acknowledging. I mentioned earlier how poorly this film ascribes to the conventions of traditional story structure. Well, here we reach the point where all past experience tells us that Wesley and Humperdinck will engage in a thrilling duel of their own, and that Wesley will slay Humperdinck as fiercely as Anigo slayed Rugen. Goldman refuses to give it to us. Instead, we have Wesley, still largely unable to move, forcing Humperdinck's surrender through verbal threats alone. It's a stunning monologue, and Elvis, who it must be said is marvellous in this film, performs it to perfection. Humperdinck doesn't die. He isn't even overthrown. He's still prince by the end of the movie. He simply drops his sword and lets the other characters run away. Well, with Humperdinck defeated, Buttercup rescued, and Inigo's father avenged, the heroes gallop off into the night on four white horses stolen by Fezzik. Andre the Giant was too heavy to place his weight on any of the horses' backs, of course, so he was suspended over it instead. A pair of cables supported his weight while a horse simply stood between his legs. For shots where the the four could be seen riding the horse out of the courtyard, a significantly shorter, visibly shorter stunt double was used. Well, with the story complete, the grandfather in the real world, 
bids his grandson farewell. The grandson, so dismissive and cynical about the book in the beginning, asks him to come back the next day and maybe read it to him again. As you wish, says the grandfather, demonstrating that the true love exposed throughout the film can apply to the two of them as well. Well, making The Princess Bride was one battle, promoting it was another. As the North American distributor, 20th Century Fox struggled to make head or tail of what Reiner had directed. Elwes said, They were very supportive. It's just that their marketing department was confounded about the best way to sell the film. Was it a comedy? Was it an adventure film? Was it for kids? Was it for adults? They didn't know which angle to take. They were not used to having so many genres thrown at them. Reiner said, The studio never knew how to market it. We literally never had a trailer. They tried to sell it like a zany comedy. I remember having this conversation with Barry Diller, who was the head of Fox at the time. I was screaming at him. I said, Barry, I don't want to have a Wizard of Oz. Because when the Wizard of Oz came out, it was a disaster. Nobody liked it and it didn't do well. I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Rob, don't let anybody ever hear you say that. You'd be so happy to have a Wizard of Oz. The indecision of Fox's marketing department cost the Princess Bride badly. By the time of its theatrical release on the 25th of September, 1987... As Reiner said, the studio hadn't even released a trailer. The film's only poster featured an artist's rendition of Peter Falk reading to Fred Savage against a mountainous landscape. Fox went with a limited release at first, screening the film in a few theatres in New York and Los Angeles, before expanding more widely on the 9th of October. At the time, audiences were flocking in droves to watch Adrian Lynn's thriller Fatal Attraction and the body-swapping comedy like Father Like Son. The Best Princess Bride managed was third place, grossing around $4 million. After another week, it slipped to 4th place, then to 7th, and then 11th. By the end of its theatrical run, it had grossed a few hundred thousand shy of $31 million. Barry Diller's mention of The Wizard of Oz turned out to be remarkably prescient. While it underperformed in cinemas, The Princess Bride became a massive hit on home video. It continued to develop a keen fan following that grew year on year. It continues to grow today, with new generations of viewers discovering its immense charm all the time. Despite attempting to write a sequel for decades... The first chapter of Proposed Buttercup's Baby was even published in a new edition of the Princess Bride novel. William Goldman has failed to complete one. He said, It's just one of those things when you go to your pit and everything sucks there. It's probably for the best. A follow-up at this stage would almost certainly disappoint when lined up against the now iconic beloved original, both novel and film. The film may have entertained millions by now, but Rob Reiner only ever really made it for an audience of one. He said, It was very important for me that Bill liked this because it is his favourite piece of work, and the fact that he loves this film is the biggest thrill for me.